0: I'm bringing my little aid here today. This is a shovel, in case no one knows what a shovel is. There's a reason that I have a shovel here. But I want to talk to you today about some a topic that's very hard for me today. And I'm praying God's grace for me today. I, I, I tell you, every day, every week, I pray God to give me a word for the day. And I believe that God has given me this word for this church today. And I'm going to stick very close to my notes. I'm going to read a lot because I don't want to miss it. I've prayed diligently this week for this, and I really want to be right. The reason I have a shovel here is because a shovel is significant to me for a couple of reasons. The shovel is used for digging for various purposes, and it's designed very well to do that. For loose soil... It's good for scooping and moving the soil. For hard soil, it's designed to jump on it to break the surface, to get into the soil. The shovel, if if it's sand or if it's loose soil, this is a great tool. At the same time, if it's rocky soil, I have a thing right here I can jump on. And all of us that have used shovels have known we can jump on a shovel pretty hard. Sometimes we need to jump on the shovel pretty hard to break the soil. That, that we need to turn. The reason we're turning the soil over, most of it, there's two reasons. Number one, we're, we have to dig down through the soil to get to the bedrock. If we're going to put a foundation in, we need to get down through that loose soil into the bedrock of the, of the earth so that we can build our building, we can build our structure on solid foundation. So we use the shovel to do that, to get down through the soil, to get down through the The the, um, gravel and the sand and all the stuff that would not be for a good foundation, we have to get through that to a rock. We use a shovel for that. We also use a shovel for planting seed. We have to turn over the good soil that we already have, and we turn it over and plant the seed. So for some today, I'm going to jump on the rock. I'm going to jump on it a little bit. For others, it's going to be a turning of the good soil. I'm just planting new seeds. So whatever position that it takes to you, understand the significance of what it is, and understand that that I'm not doing anything in a significant way other than I'm just being obedient to what the Lord's laid on my heart. So I ask God to use me this morning as a shovel digging into God's word for us. And I want to pray, Father in Jesus' name, Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your mercies and your grace. I thank you for your word that you place on our hearts, and Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would accomplish what it is today that you need to have accomplished in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start this morning by reading this parable in Luke, Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 11. When he noticed how the guest picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You may ask, what does this have to do with grace and judgment? It's the topic I'm talking about, grace and judgment. Hang with me, and I think you'll understand in a little bit. I want to take a little different look at grace and judgment and look at both of them from a little different perspective. And I want to start with judgment first. We are all very sensitive when it comes to judgment, whether from being a judge or being judged. We've been told many times it's not our place to judge another person, so stop it and let them be who they are and do what they want to do. Or we've heard, love doesn't judge. Or if you love me, then stop judging me. Or who are you to judge me or anyone else? But I want to take a new look at judging this morning. Maybe a little better definition of the word judge may be discernment. We're not judging unto damnation. Rather, we are to judge or discern as to righteous and holy living. Understand holy living is being set apart, as being sanctified, or living unto a pleasing God. We are looking out for brothers in Christ to be conscious of a lifestyle and actions that are pleasing to God, and nothing less. Now, I want to preface everything I say this morning that we must love our brother like ourselves. First of all, and first and foremost, love Jesus, then love our brother. I'm not setting the stage for all of us to become judges of each other in a negative sense of the word. In order to judge or discern a brother's actions or life choices, there are conditions that must be met. First of all, One, love your brother as yourself and honor them more than yourself. And then secondly, be willing to be judged as you are judging or discerning. We are instructed in many different passages of Scripture to love our brothers in Christ and to put them and their needs in front of our own. By doing this, we prove that we love Jesus and are qualifying ourselves to be spiritually mature. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10 Be sincere in your love for others. Hate everything that is evil and hold tight to everything that is good. Love each other as brothers and sisters and honor others more than you do yourself. In other words, hate the sin, love the person. Hate the sin. Love the person first Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 9 now about brotherly love. We do not need to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. First John chapter 3 verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. Nor is anyone who does not love his brother. First John 4.21, and he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So after you are sure that you love your brother, and you do so with pure motives, then you must be willing to be judged by them as you judge them. You have to be willing to, to use the same measurement on yourself as you use on them. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2 says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, Matthew is talking very directly to us about not judging in the form of condemning a person or pronouncing them guilty before God. Because with the same degree of undue harshness and judgmental attitude toward others will result in you being treated by God in the same way. However, Matthew does go on to tell us that we can help a brother remove a speck from his eye if we first remove the plank from ours. Let's continue reading in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there was a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus is defining for us the difference between pridefully declaring judgment on each other with impure motives and judging him by comparing him to ourselves and what we think he needs to do, but rather... With all love and humility and humbleness over our own sin, we may have the ability to help remove the speck from a brother's eye after we have the plank of our own unrighteousness removed from our eyes. And in so doing, we help save him and keep him in the faith. In Galatians, Paul is also instructing a mature Christian brother to be concerned and willing to lovingly confront And restore a brother that is caught up in sin. Galatians Galatians 6, chapter 1. I'm sorry, Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5, it says, My friends, you are spiritual. So if someone is trapped in sin, you should gently lead that person back to the right path. But watch out and don't be tempted yourself. You obey the law of Christ when you offer each other a helping hand. If you think you are better than others when you really aren't, you are wrong. Do your own work well, and then you will have something to be proud of, but don't compare yourselves with others. We each must carry our own load. So for the Christian brother to see another Christian brother openly and blatantly sinning and not humbly and in love confronting him is not biblical. But one continues to say that I'm not supposed to love, I'm, I'm supposed to love my brother and not judge him, but that's not what the Bible is saying. It's important to understand that I'm talking about that we're not judging a person to death or condemning them. I'm talking about loving them enough to help save them. By me willfully watching a brother that is caught in sin and not doing anything to help him, I am putting myself in the place of a judge and basically saying that I condone what you're doing, go ahead and perish. I don't care about you. I have my own life to live, and I don't want to be bothered with your problems. Is that love? Is that showing my brother that I love him? It's easier to do for the moment, no question. I don't want to make him upset. I don't want to intrude on their personal lives. It's not my business to get involved. But yet I say I love him. What's the definition of love? To love them enough to help save them. To get in there, to get in and risk a little bit with a pure motive and a pure heart. If a person was crossing a busy highway and didn't see the truck coming, wouldn't you holler at them and get their attention to save them from getting hit? In the same way, when we say it's not my business to get involved with a brother that I know is living in open sin, And not lovingly confronting them, am I not willingly watching them live unto their own destruction? What's the difference? We say we're living in the age of grace, and grace will cover it. Let me ask this question to you in another example. If I see a man about to jump to his death off a high building, that I could have done something about to help save him, but chose not to, and say the Lord's grace will take care of you, he will break your fall, do I have the right to extend that amount of grace? Who is the grace giver? Me or God? The only thing that I really can be responsible for is what I could have done to help save him by trying to talk him out of jumping in the first place. I don't have the right to say grace will save you. I don't. God does. James chapter 5 starting at verse 19. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Notice again here that James is talking brother to brother, Christian to Christian. He's talking about if one of us should wander away from living a holy life and another Christian brother has enough love and compassion to come and share God's truth with me, that he is saving me from death and eternal separation from God. Thank God that there are Christian brothers out there that will do that. I know this may be a hard thing to do, but if this is done in pure love and in compassion, isn't it worth it? Even if it's not the politically correct thing to do, It's a hard thing to come to a brother and say, I know something. The Lord has shown me something. Or I've seen you do things that are openly wrong. I love you enough to come to you to talk to you. That's a hard thing to do. But it's what we're supposed to do. It's up to us as mature Christian, Holy Spirit-filled believers to help our brothers in in the grace of God and not be afraid to stand up on God's word in the process. The truth will set you free. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Understand that we are not judging based upon our standards of living, but we are going back to God's word and, first of all, living ourselves according to it. Then, secondly, lifting that up as a standard of conduct and holy living. Luke 17:3 and 4 says, So watch yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. In our correction of the brother, remember, we are always doing so in the hope and purpose of restoration. Never damnation and destruction. We are never to judge in that regard. God is the only judge of that nature, and he does that perfectly. I'm not to judge a man to death. That's not the role of a judge. That's why I'm calling it more of a discernment of living, not a judge to death. So what about grace then? When and for what actions does grace have its place? First of all, we are all living in the age of grace. This era was defined at the cross when Jesus died for our sins. His grace covers our sins, and by his sacrifice, we are saved. We don't have to make sacrifice for our sins any longer. Jesus already did that, and we receive our forgiveness as he perpetuated it on the cross for us. Thank God that Jesus paid the price for us freely. And he gives gives us his mercy and his grace in our lives. But the question I'm raising this morning is this. Just because Jesus saves us by his grace, are we to extend grace to ourselves and to others in every and all situations without regard to discernment and judging of repeated life choices? That's the area that seems to get a lot of people confused as to what does God's grace really look like to us. Do we confuse God's grace with compromise? When we don't like or agree with what the Word of God is telling us, when it seems too hard or too restrictive, do we compromise our belief in it and then call it grace to live as we want to because God will forgive us? Do we have the right and the ability to compromise God's holy standards in our lives and call it grace. Are we authorized to do that? Am I the grace giver or is Jesus? He does it according to the truth of his word. When I do it, I often do it according to the situation that I find myself in. I think that's where the issue can become very cloudy. I think we are already judging whether we realize it or not, but don't see it that way. For example, if I see an action either in my own life or in that of a Christian brother and decide that it's really not that bad or everyone else is doing it and I decide not to do anything to correct it, is that not a form of judging or discerning? Yet we do that all the time and don't have a problem with that because we choose the easy way out and just do nothing and call it grace. We justify our no action to discern sinful behavior by saying, it's not my responsibility, and we call it grace. And in so doing, we are watering down the gospel and the truth of God's word, thinking that we are making it easier to accept and thus more likely that all will be saved and none will reject it. Sounds like a good idea. After all, I don't want to hurt anyone or offend them because we may be chasing them out of the kingdom or at least chase them out of the church and they, may not come, and they may not come back. But that's the area that I get very concerned with is this. If I start down the path of compromising what the Word of God says on a particular subject because it seems too hard or it's too late, we've already committed the action, or there are a, lo- or there are a lot of us that have done it, Where do we draw the line? Then what is truth and what do we stand on? What do our children and our grandchildren stand on? A compromise that fits our life choices or the truth of God's word? Sounds very much like a man building his house upon the shifting sands of compromise versus the man that builds his house upon the rock of God's truth. When the storms of life come, which house do you think will stand? I'm proposing today that we confuse grace with compromise way too often to fit our life choices rather than fitting our life choices to live holy lives before a holy God. There are many areas of scriptures that are direct when it comes to living holy. If God says he doesn't like something or tells us plainly not to do something, then do we have the right to compromise? or extend grace to those of us that have or are doing it? Who are we to make that decision? This goes back to the original scripture that I read at the beginning. I would rather take the position that God is the grace giver, and I am responsible for my actions, and I will let him determine the grace he gives that is just and fair. Just like the person taking the more noble seat with the risk of the attendant coming and saying, you aren't worthy of that seat. Please take the one in the back of the room for which you deserve. Who am I to say that I deserve God's grace in this matter of life when I'm not willing to live a life of holiness and righteousness, but one of my own desires, and then expect God to give me grace to cover my indiscretions? Let me make a statement this morning that is sure to rile us up a little more, if you're not already. You need to understand, folks, I've been struggling all week with this. I'm dealing with this. There are people that we know, there are people that I know, that I may love dearly, maybe even my own family members, maybe even be myself or ourselves, that will not make it into heaven as we are or they are currently living. Now you may ask me, how can I say that? What right do I have in making that kind of a statement? Thank you, Shovel. I am basing this on what Scripture tells us. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 15. It says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The danger we face is when we don't want to acknowledge this fact, and in so doing we live in denial that it could be us at risk of being one of the ones that Jesus is talking about in this passage So what we end up doing is creating a version of Christianity that fits our beliefs so that all the people we love go to heaven and those that we don't know or don't love are the ones that are at risk. Do you see why Jesus first talked about watching out for false prophets? Who are these false prophets? We often think of them as David Koresh and Jim Jones and all the other famous ones that we all hear about, but I'm challenged in my own spirit this morning to say that they may be ourselves, in that, we don't wa- that, in that we don't really want to believe what the Word of God is saying, so we soften it, and we make it to fit our lives and the choices that we make so that we don't seem so bad. Anytime I make and believe false ideas and, and ideologies regarding or concerning God's Word, I am a false teacher. I'm a false prophet. Woe is me. Woe is me if that is true. Woe is you if that is true. Does that make me a judge of you? No. I'm not judging anyone in this room. What I am doing is speaking truth. And if that truth is hitting a nerve, then be wise with what you do with that truth. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler, However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Verse 17 says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That's us, folks. It's time. The judgment starts at home starts right here in my heart it starts in your heart if we can't honestly judge and discern ourselves and what we are choosing to believe and to live as christian people how will the unbeliever or the new christian ever be able to in the study bar margin of my bible it tells me to go to ezekiel chapter 9 for an old testament occasion where the lord purifies his people we are the temple of god today His presence lives in us, and thus God uses his judgment to purify us. His judgment comes in various ways. It is wise wise of us to see it as it is and allow God to purify us in our living for him and be holy and set apart. Even if it's painful and hard, God is not giving us a hall pass. He's giving us a warning and an opportunity to get our lives straightened out while we have the time. Ezekiel chapter 9 starting at verse 1. It says, after that I heard the Lord shout, come to Jerusalem, you men chosen to destroy the city and bring your weapons. I saw six men come to the north gate of the temple, each one holding a deadly weapon. A seventh man dressed in a linen robe was with them, and he was carrying things to write with. The men went into the temple and stood by the bronze altar. The brightness of God's glory then left its place above the statues of the winged creatures inside the temple and moved to the entrance. The Lord said to the man in a linen robe, walk to the city of Jerusalem and mark the forehead of anyone who is truly upset and sad about the disgusting things that are being done here. He turned to the other six men and said, follow him and put to death everyone who doesn't have a mark on their forehead. Show no mercy Or pity, kill men and women, parents and children. Begin here at my temple and be sure not to harm those who are marked. The men immediately killed the leaders who were standing there. Then the Lord said, Pollute the temple by piling the dead bodies in the courtyards. Now get busy. They left and started killing the people of Jerusalem. I was then alone, so I bowed and cried out to the Lord, Why are you doing this? Are you so angry at the people of Jerusalem that everyone must die? And the Lord answered, The people of Israel and Judah have done horrible things. Their country is filled with murderers, and Jerusalem itself is filled with violence. They think that I have deserted them and that I cannot see what they are doing. And so I will not have pity on them or forgive them. They will be punished for what they have done. I thank God that we're not living in those days of God's judgment that was given at the moment, like it is here. But at the same time, just because God doesn't execute his righteous judgment at the time of the offense, make no mistake, God will execute judgment. We are living in the last days, whether it's the rapture or in the last days of our personal lives. No one here today, including myself, has any guarantee of many more years in this life For that matter, we don't know how many days or hours we have left. So understand, we are living in the last days of our lives. With that said, we have a call to persevere as given to us in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19, says, My friends, the blood of Jesus gives us courage to enter the most holy place by a new way that leads to life, and this way takes us through the curtain that is Christ himself. Jesus is the curtain into the presence of God. We have a great high priest who was in charge of God's house. So let's come near God with pure hearts and a confidence that comes from having faith. Let's keep our hearts pure, our consciences free from evil, and our bodies washed with clean water. We must hold tightly to the hope that we have that we say is ours. After all, we can trust the one who made the agreement with us. We should keep on encouraging each other to be thoughtful. And to do helpful things. In the King James Version, it says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. The New King James says, Let's to stir up love and good works. In other words, we are to be concerned about each other and discern, judge, concern, confront one another to do good things and to avoid the things that are harmful. I am your keeper. I am my brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. Let's continue on. Some people have gotten out of the habit of meeting for worship, but we must not do that. We should keep on encouraging each other, especially since you know that the day of the Lord's coming is getting closer. How many people do you know that say, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. I can pray and read my Bible at home. Well, No one is saying they can't. And in fact, they should be doing all of that without exception. But for what reason do they choose not to come to church when the doors are open for prayer and for Bible study? Is it because they have prioritized something that's more important than holding up God's Word? Are there things that are really more important than meeting with God's people, praying together, opening up and reading and studying God's Word together? Now, I know that there are exceptions and situations that come up that require us not to be in church or at Bible study or prayer. But I'm talking about the times that we have free choices to make on a regular basis. Do you think that there will ever be a reason that God will accept that I chose my things as more important than God's things? You're going to stand before God someday. You're going to give an account of every free choice you make. If you're convinced that you have a good enough reason, more power to you. Let's continue reading verse 26. No sacrifices can be made for people who decide to sin after they find out about the truth. They are God's enemies. I didn't think God had enemies. They are God's enemies. And all they can look forward to is a terrible judgment and a furious fire. The NIV says, If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. We're talking about Christian believers. We're talking brother to brother. We're talking Christian to Christian. And why is Uh, the, the writer of Hebrews, talking like this. But God says he forgives all sin. How can this be? Willful sin, repeated sin, intentional sin, deliberate sin. How would you feel if your spouse kept having repeated affairs on you, said, I'm sorry, and then had another one, and another one, and another one? even after they knew it was wrong and hurtful to you. Yeah. God forgives sin, but how much do you want to test the patience of a holy and loving God? Let's continue reading. If two or more witnesses accuse someone of breaking the law of Moses, that person could be put to death. But it is much worse to dishonor God's Son and to disgrace the blood of the promise that made us holy. And it is just as bad to insult the spirit who shows us mercy. The NIV says it this way, How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God under, underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him? Meaning, at one time, he was set apart. At one time, he was a Christian and he knows better. But now, who has insulted... The spirit of grace. Strong words for mature Christians. We know that God has said he will punish and take revenge. We also know that the scriptures say the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As I said a minute ago, we are living in the last days. And I'm calling out to everyone in this room to discern your heart. And ask God to show you where you are at in your own personal spiritual life. This is a hard message. I understand that. But it is a message of love and life. Something that we can all do this morning. Jackie, would you come? I want to conclude this morning by reading a passage in Revelations. And as I read this, I would ask for everyone to close your eyes, listen to every word, let it sink in and judge yourself as to your own spiritual life. At the end of this verse, I'm going to open the altars. And I'm going to let you decide what you want to do. If you, like, if you feel like coming up and praying and taking care of anything in your life, the altars are open. Otherwise, you're dismissed. Revelations chapter 3 starting at verse 14. says, To the angel of the church of, in Laodicea, write, These words are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and solve to put on your eyes, so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. The altars are open. If you want to come and pray, come and pray. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You may think that I'm manipulating you in this, and I know that because that's just what came into my mind right now. The enemy is saying, no, Mike's manipulating me. I'm not going. I'm not doing it because Mike's manipulating. I am not manipulating you. If you feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, understand what that is. If you don't, you're dismissed. That's fine, but I'm just telling you. I'm not manipulating. I'm calling out with the love of Jesus Christ in me that it is time for judgment to begin at home. It has to start here, folks. If we're going to have a healthy church, if we're going to be vibrant in this community, if we're going to reach out to those that are lost, if we're going to be disciples of those that are lost, we have to discern our own spirits. Hallelujah. I say to you today, this is the day of judgment. This is the day that you get your heart right with me, says the Lord. I love you. I have nothing but good for you. I am not out to hurt you. I am out calling out to you. I am giving you every chance that I can for you to embrace me and to call me into your life. And I will be there for you. I will honor you. You will be with me forever and ever and ever. This is a message of hope and of life and of love. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. as yeah. I yeah. yeah. you Father Lord we're not going to rush through this time because there's healing work being done here Father this is not a condemning time this is a time we're receiving your grace because you are the grace giver Father you are the only grace giver I come to you and I plead your grace on my life Lord I've made mistakes I have sinned before you. And now, Lord, I come to you and I ask you to cover my sin in Jesus' name. That doesn't mean I'm a sinner today. I'm not a sinner today. I'm, re- I- I'm restored. I'm redeemed by the blood of Christ. But, Lord, I have sin in my past that I just that it beleaguers me and it hampers and it, and it me and it, and it pulls me down. So, Lord, through the victory of the blood of Christ, the victory of the cross, I come before you and I lay my sin, I lay my old man down. I lay him down and I slay him in Jesus' name. And I do not have to abide by the temptations that come across that man anymore. I put that down in Jesus' name. And now I stand up as a new man. And a new woman. I am righteous. I am under God. I am a new creation in Jesus' name. And I stand on the word of God today. And I am not going to sin anymore. I am not going to sin on that shifty sand of, of compromise. I am going to read the word of God. And I am going to believe it to what it says. And I am not going to give myself a pass. And I am not going to give those that I love a pass. I am going to hold them accountable as you hold me accountable. Because you love me. And because I love you. And because I love my brother thank you Jesus thank you Jesus hallelujah thank you father thank you Jesus for your mercy and your grace and for your patience and long suffering to us we praise your holy name we praise your holy name we celebrate with you now in Jesus name we celebrate our lives and the names written in the book of heaven I thank you for the promise that we have today in Jesus name Hallelujah. You're worthy to be praised. You're worthy to be praised. Halladada boco shalaboco la pala In the darkness. Heaven
1: is on the world.
0: Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus.
1: I thank you. Thank you, Jesus. I
0: did not know the
1: faith.